T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Welcome back to The Daily Brief. Joining us now, an old friend of the show. He's been in here two times before, which puts him in rare company. There are not many people who have made three appearances on this show. I think there's maybe two or three total. But Dan Lamoth has now joined an exclusive club. Dan, of course, reporter for The Washington Post, working on an amazing amount of stories focusing on the veteran and military experience. And we're here to talk to him about what he's been doing most recently that I kept an eye on on social media. Dan, thank you so much for joining us again and welcome back. Thanks. It was uh, good to get the hat trick. As I mentioned, Dan works for the Washington Post previously, worked for the Marine Corps Times. He's been doing great work focusing on the veteran and military community for quite a long time, which included going over to war zones. So, Dan, you have a bit of experience traveling over to places like Afghanistan when the heat was really on, when we were in the thick of things, right? Yeah, uh, I missed the Iraq train entirely. Uh, mm-hmm. By the time I trained up, the uh, drawdown there was well underway, and it made sense to focus on on the surge in Afghanistan. So uh, my first trip downrange was in 2010. I uh, spent this, about six weeks in Helmand. Uh, three of them were in Marja with the uh, 3rd Battalion, 6th Marines. So, and, and I got there right on the front end of the fr- fighting season back in the day. So... Yeah, it was a it was a lot to bite off as a rookie. And the Marine Corps down in Helmand Province uh, had a lot to deal with, e- even at that point. A lot of people think 2010, 2011, the drawdown in Iraq, things in Afghanistan were still going pretty strong at that point. I know because I was in Afghanistan in 2010 and 2011. And the Marine Corps down in Helmand Province had unique things to deal with terrain wise. I mean, it's really. Uh, when you talk to people about Afghanistan, I think most of them picture Iraq in their head. They picture the desert and the palm trees and the camels walking around, whereas most of Afghanistan is high desert, up in the mountains up north, Bagram Air Base. Helmand Province is the one area that kind of does have that desertish feel. So when you went down to Bagram, or when you went down to Bagram, when you went down to Helmand Province, I should say, for the first time in 2010, what was it like then? Give us, give us your memory of, of 2010 Helmand Province. Uh, sure. So uh, you fly in commercial as a journalist, typically. Uh, so I landed in Kabul. Uh, I caught a C-130 uh, down to Camp Bastion, which was the backside of the base. Right. Uh, Camp Leatherneck was this big um, metropolis that was uh, really three bases rolled into one. Uh, Bastion was a British base that had a uh, very large airfield on it. Uh, and yeah, it, it, you very much felt like you were in the desert there. I mean, it was wide open, no shade, uh, and just, you know, at that point, it was basically a tent city with right. a handful of buildings on the Bastion side. Uh, you, you waited several days, uh, caught a helicopter out the Marja, um, and uh, for the next three weeks, I bounced around with different platoons and uh, companies uh, on different levels. And uh, and yeah, um, Marja is, was was and is uh, sort of this sh- strange world that's partly uh, our own doing from the 1950s when the uh, you know the Americans put in. Uh, irrigation systems and all this stuff, which they now use to grow poppy. So you've got all of these canals and this network of farming there uh, where they flood the fields every night uh, just about. 
and and depending on the time of the year you are there, uh, yes, you'll be patrolling through five foot, six foot tall poppy plants like you're in the Wizard of Oz. Mm. You just recently went back to Helmand Province, and as I follow you on Facebook, I saw pictures going up and it, almost these. I don't want to use the word incredulous, but these shocked posts by you of like, wow, I remember this place and how much things have changed in the span of, of eight years. I mean, that's not really that long in the grand scheme of things. So you just went back to Helmand Province with the Washington Post. Why? What was the point of going back to Helmand Province at this time? Uh, so the, this, this trip was sort of twofold. Uh, one, I was asked to fill in as a, a temporary bureau chief, uh, give somebody else a vacation. Um, so I was in Kabul, but from Kabul, they were like, you know, Hey, you know, one of the reasons we asked you to do this is if you can find some, uh, interesting three, four five day long trips, uh, out to military units, you know, feel free, plan mm. them. Uh, so I reached back out to the Marines, uh, and, and, you know, we had been talking on and off about, uh, me going down there anyway. So the timing was good. Mm. Um, and they, they were open to it and they were, they were very good hosts when I was there. Uh, but, but the feeling is so much different. Um, you know, just back in the day, Camp Leatherneck was this monster base with all of this energy. And um, at this point, uh, they're, they're not using the old Leatherneck uh, mm. per se. They're using a new camp that was set up uh, kind of as things were disintegrating security-wise in Hellman. Uh, you know, post the drawdown 2015, they, they set up a small army base there. And it, it's kind of carved out of a corner of the Afghan base, Camp Shorabak and the old Camp Leatherneck, mm. and it's much smaller. And the, and the one of the strange things is if you go out to, for example, uh, receive, receive some guests on the airfield, Camp Bastion is now essentially an un unguarded base, uh, at least in part, the airfield itself. So you'll be going out, and you know they're posting securities, the land uh, planes on a, on a base that used to be you know so large. Uh, Camp Leatherneck uh, is partly basically outside the wire. Uh, they gave me a tour of um, parts of Leatherneck that they that they're on regularly, and and that was fine. We were basically on mm -hmm. a uh, you know a, a all terrain vehicle of sorts, a small golf cart. Um, but when when you go over to the other parts of Leatherneck, that's essentially outside the wire, uh, and you would have to pat patrol it as such. Wow. Are they using it for anything? And who is using Leatherneck? I mean, you, you, when you when you talk about it, the Marines are essentially not where they were. You had Marines that were everywhere. Leatherneck was teaming with Marines. I mean, for goodness sake, it's called Camp Leatherneck. Who is using it now? Is there ANA, A&P, anybody that's actually using Leatherneck? And, and what percentage of the base would you say is actually still in use? Oh, man, that's a com uh, complete estimate. But I would say Leatherneck is almost entirely unused. Hmm. Um, there are roads on it that are patrolled. There are checkpoints inside of it as though you were on the edge of a base somewhere. Uh, camp Shorabak, the Afghan side of the camp, uh, is very busy. And, and for, uh, Marines that haven't been there in a while, you know, that, that was a very, you know, dusty plane. That place is actually pretty well built up and the Afghans have put a lot of pride into the camp. Uh, there's a lot of painting that has gone on, uh, a lot of curb stones that have been put, uh, put in and then painted like like hot pink like uh, the, the, <laughs> the camp is painted a hot pink and hot green combination it's really interesting it's quite cheerful looking actually there you go uh but uh when you get to the leatherneck side yeah i mean the, the old chow halls the the old the old meth headquarters the big multi-million dollar buildings in some cases that were put in are basically just sitting there unused uh i asked the uh marine commander you know wouldn't it make sense to have 
falling down on buildings on those buildings or move into the now. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the take was basically, you know, we were given this side of the camp for us to take that side of the camp. Now we would need a much larger presence. Yeah. Uh, we would have to basically secure that whole ring. Whereas in this case, it's basically a base within a base and, you know, they, they, they need much, uh, much less security as a result. It's a fascinating thing, and we're speaking with Dan Lamoth, reporter from the Washington Post, who's just back from Afghanistan eight years after his first time going over there and seeing some of the places that he saw when they were at full operational capacity now essentially not being used. And that's one thing that, you know, as I talk to other people who were over in Afghanistan, we wonder, like, what, what's happened to those places where we were? What are the Marines down there doing now? What is their objective in Helmand Province currently? Uh, it's, it's, the expectations are obviously way different now. Um, there's about 300 Marines in total. Um, the bulk of them are at Camp Shorab, uh, which is, you know, the old Leatherneck, essentially that area. Um, and then they have two small, um, presences, uh, forward. One of them is just south of Lashkargah, uh, the provincial capital. Uh, and that's, you know, kind of, you know, maybe 50 Marines mm-hmm. along with the Afghans that are there. Uh, they're there uh, largely to make sure that city does not fall to the Taliban, which was a very real concern a couple of years ago right. when the Marines went back down there. Uh, so at this point, uh, there is a combined operations center where uh, you. Uh, I was interesting to watch. You had uh, all of these Afghan uh, liaison officers that are working the phones. In some cases, you know they've got like numerous like old beat up Roshan style phones that you would see. Um, you know, in Afghanistan, and they're calling out to the battlefield commanders, be like, okay, where are you now? Okay, where are you now? Occasionally, they, they get calls in the same way. Uh, and when when the need is there for an airstrike because they're pinned down under fire forward, uh, the Afghans will uh, communicate back and forth. Sometimes the calls go in, sometimes the calls go out. But they want to know exactly where those Afghan units are in the field so that if an American airstrike is going to get called, they can they can make sure that is cleared and safe Mm. it's certainly a different mission than what they had before but i've got to imagine eight years later some of the marines who are there in helmand now are the marines same marines who were there in 2010 and on previous deployments where i mean if you're a marine and you've been to afghanistan chances are you were in helmand province that was the marines area of operations what about those marines those who were there before those who are back now what did they tell you about how things have changed and how they view helmand province today versus when they were first there um yeah i i did run into to several i mean uh probably no surprise the leadership uh all had experience but but in addition to that um you know i, I talked to a, a staff sergeant uh who was a corporal when he first went mm. um he's now uh basically training the trainer um uh, they're out on the backside of Camp Shorabak, uh, teaching them uh, maneuvers, uh, coordination of fires, uh, all kinds of infantry basics. And it's he goes out. Uh, there's guardian angels kind of watching his back. Uh, you know, Marines that are that are armed, but he he's out there. You know, in in his in his camouflage uniform, uh, no kit, no armor, mm. uh, working with the Afghans every day. Um, and, and he said, you know, he, he, he feels good about that. He feels safe with it. Uh, and it didn't seem like he had any opposition to doing this job. Hmm. Uh, the good majority of the, of the Hellman vets that are there volunteered to go back. Uh, they believe in the mi- mission deeply. Uh, I think if you read between the lines, there's just definitely some frustration, uh, with a good majority of them over the, where things have gone 
say between 2010 and 2015 when the Marines were pulled out entirely in 2014. Um, you know, and the way the Hellman really fell apart after that security wise. Um, but, but they're all kind of circumspect and I think they understand that, you know, going back to that kind of mission now won't happen. Uh, and from an American perspective, perhaps doesn't make any sense either. Mm. You know, when we think about Afghanistan, we think about, of course, the Taliban, we think about the Haqqani network. We now have to think about ISIS as they've made inroads there. What are the Marines currently dealing with as far as anything that they're fighting against or training the Afghans to fight against? I mean, what is the big the big issue, not just in Helmand, but in Afghanistan as a whole? Is it still the Taliban? Is, is it more ISIS now? Is Al-Qaeda, which is, seems to be growing in strength again? I mean, what are they focused most on? Uh, it, it depends on the, depends on the part of the country. If you're talking Helmand, yes, it's an, it's a, it's almost entirely Taliban. Uh, I, I don't think you could say a hundred percent because there have been over the last couple years these occasional blips where you get. Uh, I remember in 2015 there was this large training camp and there was like a three day operation and dozens of airstrikes dropped on it and that mm -hmm. was in Helmand province. So there's definitely other things that are not just Taliban there. Uh, but the bulk of it is, and the bulk of it is trying to make sure that, that Helmand province, which at this point is probably about uh, somewhere between a third and half completely Taliban run hmm. um, with other parts contested. Uh, the rest of it, uh, they're, trying to, they're trying to secure the, the, the population centers, Bashkargah, the city of Goreshk, uh, some of those other larger areas. Uh, I mean, in, in perspective, I mean, there's about 200,000 people in Lashkargah. Uh, which, when you compare it to the five million in Kabul, uh, is small yeah. potatoes. But that is the provincial capital, and a good uh, one. One thing that I didn't have a, uh, awareness of is places like Marja. Uh, you know, all the blood, sweat, and tears that went into securing Marja. Uh, at this point, they've got uh, the old battalion headquarters. Actually, the two old battalion headquarters uh, in Marja uh, are Afghan bases. But aside from that district center and the areas around it. Uh, Marja is largely unpatrolled, unsecured, and probably, if not Taliban controlled, certainly a heavy Taliban presence. We always wondered, you know, we're training the Afghan National Army, the Afghan National Police. How well is that going to work when we're not the ones out there doing it? Because, I mean, ISAF, the International Security Assistance Force, that was the actual acronym, but many people called it I Saw Americans Fighting, like, you know, where the Americans were taking care of the brunt of the dirty duty and our uh, allies not as much and the uh, Afghans a whole lot less. What's the perception for you, having been there now and being in Kabul and the overarching thing, of how the ANA and AMP, the National Army and National Police in Afghanistan, are doing in combating issues like the Taliban and extremism? Uh, I, I would say it's a real mixed bag. Um, you know, coming in as a, a civilian, either by myself or, you know, with a photographer partner, depending on the trip, uh, even running the, running the gauntlet, uh, getting in and out of the airport, uh, was something that like, you know, I would have great concern about, yeah. uh, depending on the time. Uh, and you know, I would, I would regularly be going with small bills because you'd basically have to pay at each checkpoint depending <laughs> on the trip, mm. you know, five bucks here, five bucks there, 10 bucks here. And it's, I mean, call them tips, bribes, call them what you want. Uh, I didn't have that experience this time. Uh, I found them much more professional around the airport. I found it much, uh, much more organized. Uh, the security was very heavy. Uh, there's, there's obviously been a number of very large bombings near the, mm. uh, you know, in Kabul and, and kind of in the extended outside the airport area. I think they're taking great, great, con uh, care and concern to try to make sure nothing happens inside the airport. 
So getting there is hard in terms of you're just going to run numerous security checkpoints, numerous uh, body scanners, all that kind of thing. Uh, with that said, once you're inside the airport, you kind of feel good about that security being there. Mm, yeah. Um, when you get out towards some of the smaller units, I think some of the same problems hold. Uh, I interviewed the two-star Afghan general in Helmand, uh, the 215th Corps commander. Uh, he replaced a guy that was widely seen as very corrupt mm. last year. Uh, this guy has a commando background, uh, General Amanzai. Uh, the Marines really like him, from what I can tell. Uh, they think a lot of him, and I think they're doing whatever they can, they can to make sure that he is as taken care of as possible. Uh, with that said... Uh, the 215th Corps still has very large number, uh, very large number of casualties. Uh, desertion is still an issue, um, and you're running into all kinds of other things that shouldn't be a problem in the year 2018. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they are they are built. I think they're uh, by design supposed to have about 18,000 soldiers. They're closer to about 9,500. Mm. So when you look at that and you look at wow, Helmen is not so secure, and all these areas are unpatrolled. They're at half strength essentially. Wow. Yeah, that is not a good number to be at when you're at 50% of manning, 50% of capability. It typically follows along with it. Uh, We're speaking with Dan Lamoth of the Washington Post about his recent trip back to Afghanistan. First went there in 2010, just returned from another trip. Dan, we've talked now about your experience, what you've seen. Let's look at it theoretically now. Where is Afghanistan going? As someone who just got back from there, has seen the past, what is the current situation and where do you see it going? How is it moving and how will we be involved in that? So one of the things I came out of this trip with is an appreciation for them probably, depending on presidential support, uh, who's in charge of both the United States and the Afghanistan government, um, that this is probably something that we could do. I don't know if we will do or should do, but could do for years to come. Uh, I think there's a very keen concern and interest in not having American casualties to the extent possible anymore. Uh, The Trump administration gave uh, the commanders forward the option to accompany uh, on battalion level operations. And I think even on some occasions below that, from what I can tell, it's not happening. At least it's not happening with the Marines at all. Uh, and press them on that, and they say, we see no value in doing it. Uh, if we take a Marine casualty in the field, all of the resources are going to go to extracting and dealing with that issue. Uh, and therefore, whatever Afghan operation that we're accompanying will basically fall apart. Mm. So they look at it as like, you know, we're going to be in these operation centers. We're going to... You know, we're going to prop them up with airstrikes. We're going to make sure that their training's up to par. Uh, we're going to do everything we can uh, in terms of massaging supply chains and things of that to basically make them the best they can be. But there's no reason for an American, I think, in the view of most, uh, even within the command structure, uh, to be fighting it out in, in and out of canals and all of the stuff that, uh, you know, all of the American service members, especially within the infantry and, uh, you know, some of the accompanying infantry units did for years on end there. Hmm. It does the Afghan national identity, something that in my time there didn't really exist without, uh, at least not on any large scale. Is there an Afghan national identity or is it still regional ethnic above all else? I think there are several Afghanistans when, when you look at it that way. Um, you, you go to Kabul and there's very much that uh, national pride, uh, that national 
sense. They're they're more Western looking, at least in terms of uh, being aware of the politics and the dynamics and uh, sort of these larger issues. Uh, you know, their their own presidential politics, things like that. You right. know, the, the there are strong opinions about Ghani in both you know in both directions when when you're looking at it from that way. And I think to that end. Kabul went from being a city of about a half million people when this war started to somewhere closer about five million now. Mm. So, I mean, I think people have congregated to areas that have internet, that have electricity, that have, you know, at least better security as a result. Uh, yeah, when you're down in uh, Pashtunistan, when you're down in the southern Afghanistan, uh, these areas that have all of these tribal din- dynamics and and where religion is a much stronger uh, thing both uh, in terms of the dynamics, but also in terms of the identity. Uh, yes, that that absolutely still comes into play. Um, it comes into play not only with the Americans, but also when you look at all of these, uh, you know, people. You know, if I'm an Afghan commander and I'm not from that part of the country, mm-hmm. that's actually something I've got to overcome. Yeah, and that was an issue. I mean, when I was up in RC North, where they don't even speak the same language predominantly, they speak Dari in the north, they speak Pashto in the south. They don't even speak the same language as the people who are running the country. They didn't identify with that. They identified more with uh, you know their ethnic group, whether they were Tajik or Uzbek or whatever the case may be. So I, it, it, I think you're, the way you put that is exactly right. There are several Afghanistans, and whether they can actually function as one has always been the question. Uh, it, it's When it has happened in the past, it's been under the thumb of someone like the Taliban. And even then, they didn't have control of the whole country. The Northern Alliance kept parts of uh, of the northern, the northeast area, like I'm near Faizabad and places like that. Uh, it's a fascinating situation. Now, here's the personal question for you. You went there in 2010, you went back in 2018. Do you think you'll end up going there again? And is that something that you would look forward to? Or you think you've seen enough of Afghanistan at this point? No, I, I, you know, the you, you find you you pick your targets, uh, but but yes, I, I could see myself going on and off for years. Um, you know, I think you look for the compelling stories, the compelling dynamics, or hey, somebody needs a vacation again. So I think all of those things come into play. Um, I I look for things that make sense, things that are new, things that are different, uh, not nothing currently planned, but things like you know we've got this new uh, SFAB, the Security Force Assistance Brigade. That the army sent forward, and f- uh, there are flavors of what they are doing that are the same old things we've always done uh, in terms of you know advising, you know like all assisting, all of those things that you know we have always done with the Afghan army. Uh, but at the same time, it's kind of the new version of that, and how's that work? And you know, those are the sort of stories where, if the opportunity present presents itself, I would you know be interested in you know and and seeing that play out. Well, Dan's stories you can find in one of the finest newspapers and one of the most widely available newspapers, also available on the Internet, of course, the Washington Post. Now, one of your stories that you came on the first two times talking about is really a a story and a project, a multimedia endeavor, the Letters from War, uh, amazing project that you put together over at the WAPO, which is now the award-winning Letters from War project, and so much more. Dan, if people want to find your content and the great work that you've done focusing on the military and veteran community, where do they go at the Washington Post to find that? Uh, So... Uh, a couple options. Uh, one, I, I'm st- uh, we still have the military blog checkpoint. Um, the letters from war project. Uh, thank you, thank you for mentioning that. Yes, uh, the uh, just received a Marine Corps Heritage Foundation award. 
Uh, so uh, I'll be going soon uh, to a bl- black tie dinner. Uh, oh, I just had to go to one of those. And yeah, I, first time I wore a tux since my senior prom. Uh, yeah, it's been a, it's been about six or seven years for me. Uh, I, I took one look at the tux that I bought back then and went, <laughs> nope. So we'll we'll be doing a rental this time. But I'm kind of excited to take my wife to a black tie dinner. Yeah, that's why I liked going to. Yeah. It. <laughs> so um, so the, that that project is still is still alive and well. Um, that's at WashingtonPost.com slash Letters from War. Uh, there, there's the feature writing aspect to it, which is was the award. But uh, I think they probably looked at the sum total of the project and and, and the podcast that went with that. Uh, so there, there will be a, a a few of us going. I'll be going with my wife. But in addition to that, uh, uh, Julie Vitkovskaya, uh, who is behind the scenes as, as a, a major organizing presence in this, and Carol Alderman, who produced the podcast, we're all going to go down. Really, some amazing amazing work being done by Dan and the team over at the Washington Post and. You know, in an era where people worry about what's going on at the newspapers, I can tell you I never worry about what's going on with Dan and his stories. Now, any work that you've done on this recent trip to Afghanistan, is there anything that people should be looking for coming out of that or anything that's already out there? Uh, so I did do a, uh, a full story uh, on, the, on the situation with the Marines in the South. Uh, still working on another story, having spent some uh, time uh, around the Afghan commandos. Uh, which is a major center of gravity at this point. They're really trying to build up the commandos. And there are some caveats to that uh, that I'll get into. Um, but but that that's the kind of the last major piece that I'm still working on out of the trip. Well, when that comes out, I highly recommend you check it out. And I highly recommend anytime you've seen Dan Lamoff's byline to go ahead and click on that story and take a look. Dan, thank you so much for joining us on The Daily Brief today. Once again, we appreciate your time, and I think we'll probably see you again soon. Thanks. We'll go for four. Yeah, there you go. You'll, you'll take the lead at that point. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com.